Welcome to Goompod. With Christmas Day just around the corner, I thought what would be more appropriate than to spend 90 minutes in the company of comedy writer, author and podcaster Joel Morris talking about that Christmas classic, The Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town. Well, it's not all that Christmassy, but it kind of feels like it should be, if you know what I mean. Uh, Anyway, here's me and Joel just yakking about it. Hope you enjoy. So, Joel, thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. This is lovely. Oh, well, I'm a, a big fan of, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a celebrated comedy writer, uh, but I'm a big fan of, of your podcasts. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you. Comfort Blanket is, is uh, currently yeah, going, yeah. going strong. It's one of those, I guess, like a bit like this podcast, that there's, there's going to be topics that some people love and some people are maybe not aware of, and yeah. they, they come to it through podcasts like yours. Uh, there's been I just jotted down I had a quick look at, at some of the you know some of the topics yeah. that I love that you've covered recently so Better Call Saul for example yeah. which is um I, I was almost in mourning when that ended <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that's why we did it actually I think it was realizing we've done a lot because Comfort Blanket the idea is you bring on something which you return to as a, as a comfort and usually it's a a film or a book or a record or a TV show that you go back to something from your childhood. And Will, who nominated Better Call Saul, Will McLean, said, hang on, a box set is that you go back to the same show every week. There's a million shows to watch, but you'll go back to one that is your show. Uh, weirdly, the reason you repeatedly will watch 18 seasons of something is that it's got the same appeal as listening to an old record or something. You're familiar with it. And I thought it was a really nice chance to talk about something which is supposedly quite stressful, like a gangster thriller drama. Uh, and say, actually, no, it's really comforting to go back to that world. I thought it was a really interesting th- a way, of, way of doing it. Uh, and, and so not picking a, an old Ealing movie or something, but picking something sort of quite modern and contemporary and edgy. I thought it was quite fun. I have you know, absolutely adore Breaking Bad. I've watched that yeah. th- three times now, and I'm, I'm about due for a fourth watch. Um, but I think I think Saul edges it for me in terms of what, what I feel is a better series. Yeah. I think so as well. I think, and again, the other thing to talk about, which I, I, I am a big advocate of, is I think that the th- reason that, that Better Call Saul works and is a terrific, I, mean, I blow hot and cold with box set drama. I sometimes I think we're in a golden age and sometimes I want to scream and mm. shake my fist at the, at the heavens about how much we've bloated narrative form. But I, I do love Better Call Saul because it's a comedy and it's got sitcom bones and it's got something that's got in common with something like Succession is that despite the fact it wins awards and is horribly respected and has incredibly good actors and is incredibly uh, uh, sort of cool and, and serious, it's basically a sitcom. You're, you return to it for the same reason you return to comedy. And I like the fact that secretly 
people love comedy because comedy is a bit of a run to the litter sometimes when it yes. comes to awards and things. Yes. I love the fact that it's unarguably possibly the best drama currently running and also really funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With the sh- Chicago sunroof or whatever it was yeah, called and things so like many, that. So many good jokes. So many, I mean, and, and loads of um, sitcom and uh, improv actors and things. And it's, it's a yes. solid. The reason it works is that everyone in it knows how to do jokes and, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's sort of it's flying the flag for for the comedy writers, I think, that show. Oh, absolutely, and obviously, um, I was again the former podcast. Is it former or not? Rule of three? Is it completely? Yeah, it, it's it's ended? finished now. It's basically it was it was there were various reasons that we did that show and they, they sort of passed. And also, it was increasingly becoming clear that we'd done everything. Um, that at some point, someone was going to bring on something that they loved and I hated. Uh, and there was a high risk of that. Uh, we'd managed to, I think we, there are about two or three things I thought, oh, we didn't get to do those. But most of the big sort of comedy classics we'd done a, an episode on. And I just wanted to do something that was that had the same, exactly the same approach, like sort of let's do a deep dive into one thing and talk about it technically, hopefully with creators and writers, people who know, who aren't just viewers, people who make stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but to do stuff like records and uh yeah, it was just the, the, the certainty that no matter how long we did Rule of Three for, I'd never get to do Rage of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, I'd yeah. like to talk about the same way as I talk about, I don't know, the, yeah. the young ones or something. Um, it's just a chance to do something something uh, broader. And actually, weirdly, uh, it's opened up a load of stuff I wouldn't, I think, would have run out of things to say on on just looking at comedy. And and particularly, didn't want to get stuck on on just talking about the tendency as well to talk about just comedy from your own generation, because comedy is very uh, generational. It yes, uh, it is. There's slightly more opportunity for someone to bring on some new TV show or something I've never heard of on One Comfort Blanket and for me to find something new. I think that there's also, I think what we're trying to do with Comfort Blanket, which is succeeding and failing. I originally wanted to do a show where I only talked about really, really obvious things. Because the, one of the things that's great about podcasts is you can talk about very, as we're probably going to do today, talk about very obscure stuff. But you tend to get a necessarily small audience for that. And I really like doing something that everyone's heard of and taking a different angle on it, like doing the Terminator. Or I want someone to bring on ABBA Gold or something. Finding <laughs> something, something, something new to say about something really obvious. Because otherwise, I end up, and I love doing these, end up doing these podcasts about shows only one person's seen. Uh, and what you hope to do with that, I've I done imagine, that. Yeah, I've done that. Hope, what you're trying to do with that is you're trying to open people's eyes to. Think Things they may not have uh, may not have watched, and but it's a slightly uphill battle, and it it does help if you if you look at your as you're probably fine with your thing. If you look at your sort of what's which episodes have you done this season, there better be a couple of things people have really heard of. They better make sure you're doing a Pink Panther in there uh, to draw people in. And the other in Comfort Blanket, it tends to sort of push people to be ten percent more obvious. Uh, and I do like discussing a really obvious thing. I I genuinely will never get bored about talking about I don't know James Bond movies or the Beatles. So I don't I don't think there's a there's an issue with making things too uh, too mainstream or too popular. Um, oh well, I mean, look, no surprise to say, I did an episode a couple of months ago, uh, looking at an hour and a half, looking at connections between the Beatles and the Goons. Yeah, uh, with um, Stephen from uh, the Nothing Is Real podcast. Yeah, and um, that's the most popular episode yeah. ever. It's, you want you want to leave the door open to people, and no matter. The, and I think what we're trying to do with with, with comfort blankets, I'm sure you are with yours, is is get people in through those ones and then when someone says oh i listened to this thing about something i never heard of and actually it's opened my eyes to it i went and looked for it on youtube or i bought a copy of it on dvd and now god brilliant open my eyes to this new thing but to do that i mean i'm a big believer in i have a phrase i used to use about radio 4 the radio 4 philosophy was that you're not interested in this subject dot 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 yet uh and i think it's a really good way of making things is you should 
challenge your audience say i know you don't want to hear about the building of the m6 but wait till you find we i remember there's that program the secret life of the motorway on bbc4 which they ended up interviewing the, yeah. interviewing the guys who'd laid the concrete and you went oh god at the beginning of this the challenge was i don't care and at the end of this i am so happy there's a lovely series hannah fry's doing on just started on bbc through the open university and she's doing things like the history of the bank card and that is my absolute definition of the ultimate i watched public, it yeah. it's a wonderful show mm. public service broadcasting through the roof but you should if someone puts a program on and says it's about it's about i don't know yeah it's it's about the goons versus the beatles you've got me already i'm going to tune into that <laughs> i really want to find some I, I, but i also want to be drawn into to subjects I don't know about. And I think you need a balance of the two. And I think that uh, I've, I like the fact that uh, with podcasting, more possibly than with broadcasting, there's a chance to do both. Because uh, no one's backing you and no one's paying you. You can do what you want. So there's, there's an opportunity to do a, a blend of of the blindingly obvious and the, and the willfully obscure as part of the fun, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you, actually, with Comfort Blanket, and I guess with Rule of Three as well, do you only choose guests or accept guests who have a topic that you approve of, or do you will you will you talk about a show that you you know or a film that you don't like? You cheat it a bit. I tend to ask for two or three recommendations, right? And I'll okay. pick the one. Uh, partly, partly because I'll pick the one that we haven't done, or if we're doing a series and there's everyone's picked uh, TV comedy shows for for Comfort Blanket, I'll make sure someone's picked a, a record or a, or a book or something. I think the new shows we're doing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And I, think <gasps> I'd se- I think I'd seen one episode of that before. The classic comedy writer thing. I'd seen one episode so I could parody it. That's all I'd done. Of course. And then, and then a chance to sort of do a proper deep dive into that and watch and sit for whatever it was, nine hours watching Alec Guinness. It was a real privilege. Uh, so yeah, sometimes I'll choose things I haven't seen because there's a gap in my, in my education and I need to be educated. But most of the time I'll try and choose something I'm enthusiastic about as well. We found there was a trick. I don't know if you found this. There was a trick with because with comfort blanket especially it's meant to be positive and uplifting it was conceived during lockdown when everyone was very low um mm. and i wanted to be and i found that if we argue i have to stop the podcast and start again uh <laughs> and but most broadcasting at the moment is arguing it's people they'll, they'll get someone on radio for who's who who loves tinker taylor and then someone on to say well it's problematic and i don't like it um and you're allowed to have that debate, obviously, but the idea that the two guests are supposed to be in conflict is now standard broadcasting uh, policy. Someone is usually for and someone is usually against. And finding out to, to, to the, the, the sheer excitement of editing a podcast where both people are for, and you go, oh, I feel really nice. Mm. <laughs> Which is mm. what, this, what this show is, basically. Just get enthusiasts on. They're, weirdly, you don't realise you haven't heard enthusiasm until someone gives you some, which is why podcasts, I think, are doing really well. The sound of people agreeing is actually quite a refreshing noise, bearing in mind how combative social oh, media and, and the normal media can be yeah i mean tinker taylor great tv yeah. series i've yeah i've watched it many times over my only gripe about that and it's a niche <laughs> it's a niche complaint this <laughs> we like this yeah n- n- not enough ian bannon for my life yes I, I, actually it is it is a strange thing in that it is a long and languorous series mm. and you get the feeling you only glimpse the very tip of that world and you'll happily have more of any of it Mm. And that's, I think, a very uh, it's a unique thing to, to pull off. To And I, I'd always wondered why people, especially a certain sort of person, was obsessed by it amongst my friends. 
um, particularly public school boys tend to be obsessed by it because it's kind of a huge allegory for the public school system. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Which is enormously comforting to have lampooned and have, uh, have, have and also have made epic. Um, someone asked me recently, what's your favourite television programme? And I said it and they went, no, no, that's just the most recent one I've seen. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it easily sort of zoomed up it's, to near the top of my it, telly programme. It's a world with very few women in it, isn't it? Oh, it's um, amazing. Beryl Reid, of course. But, I, I, lo- yeah. I love the way. I mean, it, Ditto, it's a lovely satire on boys' public schools and, and, yeah. uh, and sort of that very, very and 70s men's workplaces being outcrops of the boys' school system. Um, I love the way that you think that, certainly I, I didn't know this was going to happen. I knew nothing about the show apart from episode one, which I'd seen. Um, I love the way that uh, you thought that Smiley's wife was going to be like, like uh, Mrs. Mannering or, or, or Vera from Cheers off screen. And when yeah. she turns up, she's this spectacular, dominating, yeah. cool, sexy woman. And you went, that's a really clever bit of writing and casting to sort of say, the boys don't notice the women, but the women are there and they're sensational, but they're so self-obsessed, those boys, that they just don't see them. It's great. Really, I'm very, very good show. I can't but wait I, to talk about it. I haven't recorded that one yet, so I'm just, I'm sort of bottling up all my thoughts. <laughs> Can I recommend something to you then? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> just, just maybe as kind of research to go with that as a companion piece, if you like. There's a film by, um, is it Sidney Lumet? Sydney yeah, yeah. Lumet. Uh, from the from about sixty six called um, the Deadly Affair. Don't know if you know of that. Oh, I don't know that one. I love Star okay. Films, but... um, it's based on John Le Carre's first novel, A Call for the Dead, from memory, and it's basically it's Smiley in all but name, and it's wow, it's the same. Try rum. Yes, it's James Mason, James Mason as oh, as God, didn't you love James Mason? Brilliant. As as in this in the Smiley role, and we've got the same. Um, you know he's a cuckold, and he's got he's got the wife who comes Wonderful. and goes, and you've got this. Uh, uh, well, look, just if you get a chance, seek it out. It's a fantastic I will, film. I will dig that out. I'm now about to give away that that will become a Christmas present because my wife is the most enormous James Mason fan. I don't think she's seen that one, so that might be that might ah. be uh, under the tree giveaway spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> so. Joel, I mean, obviously, this is a podcast about we look at the goons, the goon yeah. show, but also, you know, the individual goons, and it tends to be weighted more heavily towards Milligan and Sellers for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, but you obviously, you know, you're you're in the world of comedy. Did you grow up? You you you're too young to to hear it first time round. But did you grow up listening to it through parents or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, it was basically. I, I I'm we're we're a goon worshipping country. It's uh, Milligan was 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 in my blood from what felt like birth um (laughs) we had the books in the house i mean there was always the the shelves of of books including like comic books we had had a copy of milligan's ark the charity book he did with all the illustrations i loved as a little kid i always pulled that down off the shelf and read that Mm. we had the poems in the house the, the silly verse for kids and things um and my dad had loads of comedy LPs and we had uh loads of goons ones and also had a library card and and most of my music and comedy taste was from going to the library and when they had records and tapes in the library being able to take them out and then we would bootleg them shh don't tell anyone and home taping was not killing music it was helping me get into it and they were in the car so they didn't feel like i knew they were old but i mean they weren't that old i suppose it's a bit like sort of saying oh it's really old it's the league of gentlemen they were probably only about 20 (laughs) or 25 years old at that point Uh, but they were in the car and on long journeys especially going to see grandparents and things that was what we'd had in the car we weren't my dad was a massive music fan, but we had a couple of compilation tapes in the car. But I wasn't bothered by music, and neither were my brothers very much when we were younger. So we weren't insisting on putting Adam and the Ants or Madness on in the car or whatever would be in the charts at the time. We weren't that bothered. So we always yeah. had comedy. So we had Round the Horn, 
uh, and uh, Peter Sellers LPs, the Swinging Sellers and things like that. Uh, Hancock a lot. Uh, the Glums, I really like the Glums. Oh yeah, um, but mm-hmm. underrated. Really big Norden and Muir fans. Really big uh, Feldman and Took, who I think are so underrated. Mm. Mm. When everyone talks about the direct line from Milligan to Python, the other line is is Feldman and Took, and I think that Flying Circus has way more in common writing wise with uh, with Feldman and Took sort of media satires and campery and characters than it does with the Goons. The, goon, well, the Goons is the Goons is is the anarchy of Python. But I think Python is, is a combination of Milligan plus round the horn. Um, do, you, do you know what we discovered recently? Sorry to cut in. Yeah, there. go on, yeah. Just, just on that point, myself and a, a friend of mine did a recorded one of these a couple of weeks ago, um, looking at It's a Square World, you know, the Michael Benton yeah, yeah, Benting series, stuff, yeah. which is all but forgotten, really. Yeah. Uh, you ask a kid, a 15-year-old kid today, they've, they've never heard of it. Like, yeah, they've never heard yeah. of it. They've got um, no education. What are they teaching <laughs> them at school? What are they teaching them? <laughs> but we've watched about five or six um episodes of it's yeah. a square world and what jumped out was how much there was a an influence on flying circus really uh, you know sort of five years or six years later i think and we're the two talk, i think we're going to talk about this today i think it's one of the things that's interesting about the subject about, about talking about phantom raspberry blood today is that there's a, a myth and this is not going to be an anti-goons thing no. there's a myth there's a direct line that milligan who obviously was grumpy about this invented monty python and that all the glory that went to Python should have been secretly, if Milligan hadn't been so wayward and difficult to deal with, he would have got all that glory and had all the films and, and American tours. And I don't think it's true. I think Milligan is part, a really vital part. The Milligan voice and the goon voice is a vital part of why Python exists. But there were so many people working in that key around the same time that it all came together. There's a lot of stuff around, very often by the same technical people or by the same teams or by people who are friends with them or who they'd work with, that it was in the air. I think Milligan is, is a spark, certainly a spark for formatting that Terry Jones certainly jumped upon. And I know that he and Palin were the really, really big Milligan nuts in, in Python. Yeah. And they liked the formlessness <clears throat> of it. But no, the stupid thing about Python, everyone goes, oh, it's great. No one who now talks about Python loves it for its formlessness. No one goes, oh, I love the bits that go on too long. <laughs> what you like is for its formal rigor, its astonishing craft, the astonishing performances, which were basically being tried out in by loads of people. Oh, the, the visual inventiveness, the special effects, the the, the use of film, uh, the, the the commitment to, to, to worlds and imaginary silliness, which is all over the place. That's from everywhere from the two runners to Michael Benteen to certainly from radio the radio I grew up with I could hear there was a straight line through I liked Monty Python having seen it on TV I got got to stay up late to watch it Mm. and then off the back of that weirdly I got obsessed by the three or four episodes of Monty Python that were repeated late at night when I was a kid and I went this is brilliant my dad said you'll like this and then I sought out anything that was a bit like it so that included I think backwards then included the goons and getting into sort of Benton and Sellers and things like that. Um, so I liked anything that had that sort of anarchy, that wildness, that silliness, the childishness almost of it, the, the, the freewheeling Alice in Wonderland nonsense of it. I loved that. So yeah, we, we had the goons in the car a lot. Uh, and I loved that. I think the L, we didn't have, we had two LPs. We had Scarlet Capsule Tales of Men's Shirts, which I loved, and particularly because Scarlet Capsule was sci-fi and I liked sci-fi as a kid. Yes. So it was like an episode of Doctor Who done by the goons. I loved that. Um, well, it's quite a mess, but it was the same thing. Well, um, yeah, because 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 Milligan was good friends with Nigel Neal. Oh yes, that, that, of course they would have been. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a pastiche of your mates your mates show. Around the great scarlet capsule, the entire cast are assembled. That's me in the wig. My friends, we have just one hour to find out the origin of this giant scrimson scrimson screw. After that, they're letting the press in. Yeah, hurry up, man! I'm waiting for a headline. <laughs> 
dad is a trilby hat on legs. Steady on my man. I am ace blue bottle. Known in Fleet Street as Scoop Blue Bottle, Wonder Boy Reporter. What paper do you represent? Brown paper. <laughs> and then I liked anything that was like that, anything that had that that craziness. And then that means that again, we'll talk about this today. Is there's a there's a divide in comedy about reality, I suppose, about how much the world that the comedy writer is, is, is directing is really happening and as a little kid i liked anything where they broke those rules where they looked out broke the fourth wall or reversed film or said this is just a pretend thing where it felt more like a sort of televisual pantomime or a radio pantomime mm. uh, and that's the thing that links all the sort of milligan-esque what's called lunacy and you went no it's, it's the same jokes that are done in pantomimes you can see a pantomime no one goes oh this is milligan-esque it's breaking all these rules <laughs> it, it, it's it's challenging and theatrical you go well that's just how you do a silly play what's very strange as fashions have changed is that 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 voice has been so lost you almost never get anything where reality is broken in a in a comedy thing because people are frightened of that. They worry if you break the reality, then the audience won't like it. And the truth of it is, as Milligan stuff proves and Python stuff proves and these the two running sketches prove, break reality and let the audience in on the joke and everyone loves it. People love yeah. Well, yeah, it's 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 um but as a kid, anything that was crazy, so that included early uh, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks airplane goodies goodies yeah the the uh, what's i keep wanting to say anarchic it's called anarchic and zany when critics talk about it but it isn't it's just basic comedy it's how if you were telling a joke to someone and you broke character to say to make a little aside no one would go oh anarchic <laughs> when you when you tell a joke sometimes you 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 play games with the limits of what's real um to do it it's what groucho marx or, or, or uh, oliver hardy looking to the camera is um, it doesn't break the reality of comedy, but there's a timidity that comedy has to have the reality and solidity of drama for it to feel real. But actually, where you sit on that um, line of reality to fantasy, uh, for, of, of, of conspiracy with the audience, is a decision that all comedy writers make uh, and recently has been pushed to say you can only be at one end of it. And I think the reason I have a fond memories of the goons and the fond memories of Python and Airplane and all that sort of stuff and fond memories of Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town is because it was one of those things from my childhood that was like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was just all bets were off, anything to make you laugh. Yep. That was the contract. The contract wasn't to make me care about the characters or to follow a story. The contract was, I will watch you do <laughs> anything that is funny. The, the trick was to make everything look deliberate. And, and there's, there's, there's two ways of doing that in a conspiracy with the audience. One, you say, you set up at the beginning and you say, the people making this program are idiots. And you, so that's like the play that goes wrong kind of joke. Or it's a cheap, it's a Acorn Antiques that you're saying, no one in this is skilled enough to notice it's gone wrong. And that joke is solid. It's Patrick Barlow's joke in National Theatre of Brent. Mm, mm. It's a joke we did when we did the Family Examiner. Uh, our joke was the journalists are too busy, too tired and too underpaid to, to notice the mistakes that have got through. That is the joke. And you are allowed in on that joke. That's a joke The Onion doesn't do. The Onion doesn't have spelling mistakes and things in it. It says this is a professionally produced, slick newspaper and the content that goes in it is self-important. That's a different joke. Would you include something like the radio and then the television series of people like us? Yes, Perfect, perfect thing. Where again, every any joke was real, and I remember being—I I, I have—I'm no longer of this opinion. But when it came out, I was furious with the office 
for taking the mock doc format and not doing with it what people like us did, which was every joke you can possibly do about an overstretched crew failing to make a documentary, but still the documentary being incredibly the kind of documentary that might make its TV. I was furious that they'd, they'd abandoned pastiche and abandoned uh, no holds barred jokes and replaced it with uh, neatness of character and uh, sitcom values. And I went, oh God, you've, this, this isn't... This isn't as, as wild and ambitious as it could be. I was being grumpy. Uh, it's a great, great show. And the fact that it, it, it sticks to its rules so well is why it's brilliant. But at the time, having seen people like us, I went, oh, well, the things you could do with this. Why are you, why are you, why are you not doing everything? Uh, which is, uh, yes, the, the, the folly of youth. But I remember being grumpy about it and wondering why, why they were attempting so little with it, um, which is not true. They were attempting something different is what they were attempting. When uh, people say... Oh, would you rather be thought of as a funny man or a great boss? My answer is the same. To me, they're not mutually exclusive. There's there's a weight of intellect behind my comedy. Yeah, if you were to ask me to name three geniuses, I probably wouldn't say um, Einstein, Newton. You know, I'd go Milligan, Cleese, Everett, Sessions. I enjoyed rewatching it recently for a podcast, yeah. uh, and I noticed all the other things that were going on in it, which are incredibly clever. Some astonishing stuff about class, about how how comedy works. Actually, loads and loads of debate in in the office about how people use the currency of comedy and jokes. It's incredibly sophisticated writing in lots of it, uh, musing on why people tell jokes and how they use it for social dominance. And it's an incredibly clever bit of writing. And me being annoyed with it for for not being people like us blinded me to a lot of brilliant <laughs> things about it that I now go that's really good um and it is really really good um but I think I was so crazy as a kid for no holds barred every joke if you want to do a joke about the camera falling over that is allowed and the only rule that seemed to be there for that which I thought was really clever was let the audience know that's what you're doing that it's not a mistake which is really hard because sometimes you do those jokes, you do total comedy and it breaks the reality to a point that the audience stops enjoying it. They stop, they start saying, stop dicking around with this. And I think Milligan, uh, where Milligan comes in with this is because he came from radio. Uh, and there's a really strange thing with radio audiences, uh, having done stuff in the radio theatre at the BBC, mm. that the audience at home for radio comedy is imagining... Um, the world like they're reading a book you bring your imagination to bear so yeah. sound effects and 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 acting and things that build a world which you listen to just through it and you have to bring quite a lot to it because you're not watching it you're imagining it your imagination has to come in you meet it halfway hence the joy of hitchhikers or whatever where you're building a beautiful sound world mm. but the people in the room with it are watching a play and they can see the actors and they can see the actors giving side eye to each other and stepping forwards or going to the mic that's got a radio uh, filter on it or the one that's got a robot filter on it they can see how you're making it and there's a lot of winking to the audience and you the hard thing to do with recording a radio show is to be aware be aware of the audience at home and not do loads and loads of fourth wall breaking gags that will kill in the room uh because you're performing a live show to a, a live audience and milligan exists exactly in that middle point of mugging to the audience who are watching and allowing that mugging to go through the radio to the audience at home who also enjoy that he's going, oh, it's sellers again or whatever. They can hear that it's just actors. It's not really Neddy Seagoon. It's it's the, the full Seacom. Um, it's a complete cousin of doing a, 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 a forces gang show where you know that's just Gunner Seagoon dressed mm. up. <laughs> the line goes straight through. That's where he's done his training. 
live comedy where you are not in character, you're half in character, like pantomime is, where you you know it's the butcher dressed up, it's not really Baron hard up. Um, one of the things I think is incredibly strong about Mrs. Brown's Boys is it's got that value that is winking to the audience. That audience knows exactly the rules of a panto, which is that's not really your brother, that's your... God, Brendan's thing, it's like his sister or his accountant or something. No one's really their characters, but you play a game with it. And Milligan is completely from that tradition. And then when he takes his comedy to TV, strangely, he tries to pour over that thing where they're always winking at the audience going, I'm not really in this sketch. Um, I'm, I'm wearing the the, the the costume tags from the, the BBC yes. costume department or, <laughs> or what are we going to do now? I will break all the rules of reality to allow you to watch me put on a silly show. Um, what's great about Phantom Raspberry Blower is that's where that sense of humour crashes into elaborate, ripping yarn style, period, expensively produced film comedy. And the question is, well, how far can you go in building an elaborate world and saying it's 1899, but also constantly winking at the audience? And I think, really, it's one of the closest things to televising the goons they've ever managed. Well, yeah, I mean, that's nicely, nicely brings us on to the topic of today's. I'm good. Today's episode. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I'm, just, I'm, I'm hitting my beats. I, I, I sort of, there, there was a bit of tape on the floor. I stepped forward and we're, we're bang on mark. Now, <laughs> so I, obviously, Joel, you suggested this as, as something to come on and talk about. And one of the reasons you said this, because you, you, you described it as you'd love the lost art of the comic play. Yes. People listen to this. Well, sorry. People listening to this probably know that there's there's two different ver well there's three there's a number of different versions yeah. of of the Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town, but the most the one that most people know is is the two Ronnies serialization yes in seventy six but but there was an original half hour long version yeah for for six dates with Barker which is a peculiar mm. series and if you buy if you buy the uh, buy the DVD of six dates with Barker you will find yourself watching the Phantom Raspberry Blower probably uh, that's that's the one that's the standout episode I think that's fair to say isn't it it's it's the one yeah because I've wanted because we you know we celebrate all forms of comedy on this yeah. podcast and I wasn't going to go into too much detail but the six dates with Barker uh, from early seventy one was it was kind of like the, what was the one that came after was it um oh what was it called um there, there seven, of, seven of one was the, there was a comedy playhouse that gave us porridge and things and open yeah, all hours came out of that didn't they yeah i think that was seven of one it was barker's follow-up if you like um seven pilots for potential yeah. sitcoms and yeah porridge and open all hours came out of that but this this did spawn um a sitcom about 20 years later because they did a, a an early version of what became Clarence. Oh yes, of course. That's the. I knew there was another one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Phantom Royalty Blows is is your standout from that that series. I think it's Ronnie, Ronnie Barker just doing a one off comic play. And the, the reason I said the, the the lost art of the comic play, I was talking. Uh, one of the episodes of the Comfort Blanket series is going to be about ripping yarns. Yes. So one of the things that I think I love about ripping yarns is it's a, a length of comedy that doesn't exist anymore, which is half an hour in a world. Uh, have an idea that it won't stretch to a sitcom or a film, but you've got half an hour where you'd like to just take a comic idea for a walk. Um, and we used to have a lot of TV plays that were short, um, uh, drama ones, but some of those would be comic as well. It was possible to put on a comic idea. You have a, something, a funny idea you'd like to explore some characters. And we had a world where you could have Nuts in May or Abigail's Party or an episode of Ripping Yarns mm -hmm. or The Phantom Rosby Blow of Old London Town. Not a sitcom, half an hour of funny jokes on a theme. 
maybe about some characters or about a situation or a place or set in a period. And there was a space on television for it. And since then, I don't know where you'd make something. If you had 45 minutes of good ideas about uh, a comic strip, probably is the other, other example of that. We've lost this thing where if you've got a great idea, and yeah. I have these ideas all the time, you go, I've got a great idea. Let's do something about, let's do something about heavy metal band on tour. And the answer would be, well, either it's a film or it's a TV series. Maybe it's overstretching it. And maybe there's not the money for a film because the films are expensive. Maybe no one will go and see it. So I have to put that idea in the bin. Mm. Um, mm. unless I can do something magical with it. And I love the, the the idea of saying, well, we could explore some comic ideas. And I think Ronnie Barker was amazing at saying, look, we should do these playlists with me in them, and they might turn into sitcoms. And we're looking at this, I suppose, and saying that the ones we really liked are the ones that did turn into longer-running things. But I don't think you should be unfair on the ones that didn't. Because at least you're trying... It's, it's an experimental place. It's a place to do pilots and not ex not expect any more than half an hour of fun out of them. And I, I, Phantom Raspberry Blower, it's remarkable that it had a life beyond its Six Dates with Barker thing, which is incredible that people then got to know it and still remember it fondly. But it would be fine if it was just this weird little one-off 1971 TV comedy play. I'd be delighted with that. Sir, can I assist you? Yes. Is the Prime Minister in? Yes, he is. But he sees nobody without an appointment, except Miss Maureen Body. Hmm. <laughs> Would you give him my card? There is no address, sir. I know. I'm never in. <laughs> is there any message? Yes. Tell him this. It was originally conceived as a, a TV special for the goons. Yes, it was supposed uh, to be directed by, by the goons director and have, have Sellers and, and Seekham in it, which it would have been perfect. It's absolutely. Even the title, as soon as you say the Phantom Rodfield Lower of Old London Town, I can see that on a BBC Records and Tapes cover with a lovely Martin Honeysett cartoon on the front. It's, it's <laughs> a dreaded batter pudding hurler of Vector well, on sea. It's that, isn't it? I always confuse it with the phantom head shave of Brighton. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Milligan joke. He's, he's yes. got a, it's a hammer horror. I mean, it opens the, the, the two Ronnie's versions, opens with Chopper films. It's a hammer horror, Jack the Ripper pastiche, uh, Gronquignol, Victorian, Gothic, kind of dreadful <laughs> thing. It's, it, and it's exactly in his key. And as with a lot of good Milligan stories, when Milligan attempts a story, it's someone else's story. It's it hangs loosely over the beats you know from a from a, a a Victorian Jack the Ripper drama. So you're completely safe. You know you won't get lost, mm -hmm. and so therefore he can be as silly as he wants to. He can break all the rules of narrative and character, but you will always be able to get back to the tracks because it's a nice, simple. The police are after a Ripper. The end. The, it, it, it's a little bit obscure in terms of the actual reason as to or reasons as to why it never happened with the goons right um from what i can understand and from speaking to some people and, and speaking to uh uh lee moon actually who was the chap who was responsible for putting the phantom raspberry blow on stage right uh, five or six years ago we, we spoke and he's done quite a bit of research on the the origins if you like of the story and as far as i can make out so in 1968 the goons uh uh did Tales of Men shirts on Thames Television with John Cleese as the announcer. Um, they, they, they. Yes, yes, that, that's one. The goons are funny because every time we do a documentary, you have to either get Last Goon Show of All or that. Or that. That's, that's right. What, that's what the yeah. clips are. Yeah, yeah. and um, and 
around this time, Sellers' career was starting to nosedive, really, in terms of films. His, his, his choices of films um, were becoming ill-advised, shall we say. Uh, but he was also, I mean, he, was go, he was entering a marriage which was going to be a pretty disastrous marriage um, around sort of late 69 into 70 with Miranda Quarry. And his life was a bit of a hot mess around this time yeah. but he was getting very nostalgic and he was getting you know and he was always he always said his favorite you know the best time of his life professionally was doing the goon show and i think it was around this time sort of late 60s 68 69 that milligan with this in mind wrote this this well it was going to be an hour an hour long tv yeah. special and it, it wasn't going to be resurrecting goon show characters it was just going to be the three of them playing the characters more or less that you get in the, the barker version yeah. Uh, but then it would appear as, as so often with Peter Sellers, you know, he agrees to something and then he changes his mind and some, some his, his milkman's <laughs> objected to it. Usually that is. Yeah. It? Yeah. Morris Woodruff had said, no, 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 go and go and make, uh, I don't know, Hoffman or, yeah. or whatever. That's where your uh, career is going. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, ne- it never, it never took off. And, and, and the, and you, you mentioned ripping yarns and I'm just thinking, you know, if it had happened in, in some parallel universe, if it had happened and it had been successful and a hit, you know, it could have spawned yeah. a whole series of, of half hour, goon tv plays yeah absolutely and i think that that's i mean i, I can't help comparing it just because i've watched a load of ripping arms recently for, for the podcast and comparing it going it's very much in that same key uh they're using when they use film and things it is really classy it's really this is the six states of barker version and the two ronnie's version it looks brilliant um it's the same teams who who then go on to make a lot of this very good period comedy drama when you see it on TV, when Python do it or or Palin does it or or anyway, it's the two Ronnie's gang and Ray Millichope, who's the Python film editor, is the film editor, I think, on both of these on the on the the mm. the, 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 the Barker play and also the, the two Ronnie's thing. It's made by two people and you go, Oh, it looks like those things, those rare little comedy gems that you then treasure afterwards, like ripping yarns, that were expensive, lavish complicated and silly because usually and this is speaking as a, as a comedy writer the easiest thing to cut from anything is jokes um it's very hard to cut plot very hard to cut character you can always cut jokes and if the jokes are silly and only one person finds them funny or they're just to or they're stupid and you can just say why are we doing this the moment a joke takes more than three seconds to set up and build the set for someone will decide not to do it because why are we doing this it's silly it's very very rare to get something lavish to screen with silly jokes in because the amount of work it takes to get that, the joke eventually becomes, why are we wasting time doing this? Yes. Uh, it becomes, uh, the, the central joke I always loved about Vic and Bob is they were staging things that should have been left on the cutting room floor, but with <laughs> dancers and lights. And the joke is the lavishness of the waste of time, which again is in Eric and Ernie. It's a good joke. It's just funny. Every sperm is sacred from Monty Python is the ultimate television <laughs> waste of time joke. Half an idea for a song, but here comes everybody in the world dancing to it it's very funny um and that's a cousin of this which is you've got 16 mil cameras and you've made them like a hammer it's made the same way as i think you forget as well when you look at things from this period that if you switched over and then watched the anedian line or secret army it looked like this mm. um it would be a mixture of, of video and and film and it would be uh, shot slightly murkily the night shots would be slightly underlit it's this is this doesn't I think there's a tendency of thinking this looks cheap <laughs> and it looks cheap compared to Better Call Saul, but it wasn't cheap. It was as expensive as drama. And to persuade people to do silly and spend loads of money on it is something that you can only do if you're absolutely riding high. If you're Spike Milligan, Ronnie Barker, 
Michael Palin, you might be able to twist someone's arm and say, will you please spend on uh, a pro a set of number 10 Downing Street? Can we dress up as Edward Seventh? Can we, it's expensive. Um, I love the dedication to this and the, the potential that maybe the goons might, as you said, have had a series of these. That that would have been so exciting. They never made that jump. And it feels like this is the, this is, the last remnants of where the goons went on to make the goons and the holy grail or the goons version of ripping yarns there's there's something else that we haven't mentioned in terms of the fourth series of python yes there's two story episodes the golden age of ballooning and mr neutron both of both actually here's a good example both written i think those are palin and jones ones they were always the story guys right they okay. did, did, did reg pith the cycling tour in python as well which i think is lovely um, yes. which is one of the best ways of marrying sketch and story together and is delightful really really nice the other two less successful but also proof that palin and jones are absolutely top class comedy writers and they struggled to make something have any kind of narrative cohesion while being silly uh, the problem with those python extended episodes is you don't care you don't care where they're going because anything can happen because you can break the rules because it's monty python rules whereas i think in ripping arms they choose beautifully to stay the world is a bubble universe in which you don't prick that bubble ever you never put an anachronism no one ever looks to camera nothing's no, no props fall over there's no jokes about the production it's 100 percent an edwardian yes costume drama whereas yes. phantom raspberry blower weirdly just flirts to the very edge of, of, <laughs> of bursting its bubble at all times and yet i still follow it and i still kind of want them to catch the baddie <laughs> and I think that's that's the thing that's impossible. If you're breaking all the rules, it's very hard to make you care. Um, and I, I, it's nowhere near at the grade of, of character work and plotting is ripping yarns. But it's not it's not a failure. It's not as shambolic as the the Python anything goes ones, where there are loads of great routines, but they don't really add up to anything. This is yeah, it's got a propulsion. It's a bit lean. I mean, that half hour version is great. It really it clips along. And the I think the the, the two Ronnies version when you edit it down is an hour and five or something mm. so it's it's extended then by by ronnie barker by a gentleman um on the credits uh gerald wiley gerald wiley yeah yeah pumped it out and with some really good stuff actually very milligan-esque stuff well, it's got it's got it's got slightly higher production values than two ronnie's version yes of yeah if there's some lovely stuff and again i think it's the, i think it's a lot of the same people you i think the two ronnie's i don't know i didn't see the i didn't look up the full credits for the two ronnie's thing but the two ronnie's but that's 76 yeah two ronnie's film director was jim who went on to do ripping yarns and i think ray Millerchope was the two ronnie's film editor so basically it's python and ripping yarns people making it, i think i growing up i was a huge not like news fan and then yeah. felt I, what i had to do was reject the two ronnie's and reject this the sort of <laughs> uh like you should do you should reject the, the comedy of your parents generation forgetting it was very often the same people doing the same jokes and there's loads of jokes in this that you that i i don't think i've ever seen done or even attempted elsewhere the thing that i think the reason i probably suggested it is i remember the last time i watched it which was a long time ago i was stunned by the boldness of the risks and the the the, the fourth wall breaking it did on tv and it did feel like the sort of stuff you can get away with on radio um and i think that what i there are shapes of joke in here that I don't think you could even try now. It's it's a last gasp of really uh, smashing up TV <laughs> storytelling, um, and yeah, that that astonishing joke where where uh, in the I think it's better in the play than the the, the, the Tony Ryan's adaptation where there's a huge dump of exposition and Ronnie Barker walks off and goes to feed the ducks. Oh yes, and mm. I don't think I've laughed 
that hard at anything in years. When I first, I saw that, I went, wow. I forgot it was restaged where <laughs> Ronnie Corbett goes on the pub. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't matter where they are. They can carry on the conversation with the witness who's in the police station. At the, It's when Ronnie Barker turns to the camera at the duck pond on film and asks a question of the, oh, the, the witness being interrogated in the police station on video. You know where your son is? No, I wish I did. <laughs> What's his first name? Dick. Dick? <laughs> Sergeant Bowles? Cut! Arrest all men named Dick. <laughs> Every bit of it is saying to you, you know this isn't real. And you know as well that a lot of exposition, which is necessary for the story, is really boring. So he's going to go for a walk during it. And <laughs> just the camera will follow him and he'll come back. And it felt like something from... There's a brilliant bit. I think it's in Shoot the Pianist, the Truffaut movie, where the camera is distracted by a pretty girl walking past and wanders off, follow, ignores the gangster and just goes down the road with this pretty girl oh, and then cuts great. back. <laughs> and it feels like new wave cinema. It feels like a very 60s, very freewheeling... Uh, Whatever we want to do, this is this is we're making a thing, and whatever we fancy doing with the thing we're making, we can do it. There's no there's no rules, guys. Um, I, I love I, I do miss that thing though the the way you would watch something watch something on television in the seventies or even the eighties, and uh, half of it would be on VT and half of it would be on film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's a huge. I, I I talk about this a lot because I think it's a huge barrier to people understanding or reading uh, old TV when they watch archive TV. It's a reason. It's a reason that it. For some reason, you read it as cheap now, whereas you used to read it as just the way television is. And so the moment things went to all film, all 16 mil, I remember mm. I, watching the Did You See episode about Edge of Darkness. I think it's on the Edge of Darkness DVDs. And it's just Ludovic Kennedy going, it's it's all it's all on film. Like, it's just like, <laughs> like so, it's, it's broken all the rules. How have they made it? It's like a James Bond. Is it vulgar that it's all on film? Um, what, what's going to happen to television now? We're allowed to ask for all film. Uh, the thing that, again, Palin and Jones asked for, 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 for ripping yarns, can it all be on film, please? Um, it does look better for all being on film. And it keeps, it's weirdly, it stops you bursting the reality. It mm. keeps that thing, and it's got the. It has a, a a contract with the audience that says this is really happening. That's how you're able to do those silly ripping yarns and make them feel authentic and warm. And and the parody is totally solid there. But when you're doing that shifting from VT to film, you can see it. You pretend you can't. But you've got a contract with the audience the same as in a theatre where you know you can see the exit sign and the ice cream, but you pretend that King Lear is really on the heath. Um, there's a great joke. Uh, it's, a, it's a Gerald Wiley. It's a Ronnie Barker joke in the in the two Ronnies restaging of, of Phantom Rosby Blair, where the fact that it's full of stock footage, it's, it's always cutting to black and white footage of crowds or mm. or sort of the, the coronation of Queen Victoria or whatever. And there's a bit where Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett are waving at the window in a really nice set where they're waving at the window to celebrate the 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 the, the, the jubilee the, the, the jubilee mm. and and they, they mentioned that the celebrations are happening in black and white <laughs> and ronnie corbett is given a black and white union jack to wave out the window at the, at the stock footage and they say three cheers for the the gray white and black one which is <laughs> it's completely in the key of milligan and it has to be said that ronnie barker's additions to the milligan script are completely in keeping fairly seamless i can't if I hadn't seen both scripts, I'm assuming that, that Milligan's contributions to the two runnings are taking the original Six Days of Barker script and then padding it out with half an mm. hour of extra material. Yep. I can't tell. If I hadn't seen the original, I wouldn't know where they were. And I think that 
uh, Ronnie Barker, as a writer, he's writing in a Milligan style, but the pastiche is as seamless as Eric Sykes or Larry Stevens. It fits perfectly. Um, and I think sometimes helps the story because he's a good story guy. Barker's not bad at plot, character, all the things that Milligan sometimes struggles with. Um, his additions are good. And I if I watched it, and as I did as a kid, and it said, by Spike Milligan, there's not a moment of it. I don't go, that's not by Spike Milligan. It's it's a very sympathetic extension of the story. It's really good. Yeah, when I first saw Phantom Raspberry Blur as, you know, on the two Ronnies, so I, I first saw yeah. the serial. And it was when I, it was obviously a repeat. It was the late 80s. I just got into the goons. And I was particularly interested by the fact that it was, it says, written by Spike Milligan and a gentleman. Yeah. And and I just took the and a gentleman as a just a kind of like a throwaway gag or whatever. It's a good gag. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. I just assumed it was all Spike. Yeah. But it's, it's a, also a classic Ronnie Barker thing to sort of say, I, I won't get in the way of this. Mm. A very, a very gentlemanly act. Sort of say, look, if it's said by Spike Milligan and Ronnie Barker or even Spike Milligan and Gerald Wiley, it's a bit distracting. He says, this has to feel like Spike. It feels like we've, I've got the luxury here of a lovely Spike Milligan idea. We get to be in a goons film. How lovely is that for the pair of us? And they do it with gusto and enjoy all the chances to dress up and be silly. Um, there's a real sense that it's a privilege for them. I, I remember thinking that as a kid watching it, that I went, oh, oh, you've got a Spike Milligan thing. I knew who Spike Milligan was. I went, oh, your special guest on this is a special guest writer. And it's funny because the, the Ronnies, whenever the credits roll at the end, when you're older, you go, oh, my God, everyone wrote for this. And it has got Palin and Jones and, 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 and Graham Garden and... David Nobbs, people, uh, David Brenwick, people who know from elsewhere. Yeah. But weirdly, Spike Milligan is a star writer for them, so he gets his name on the screen. All the rest of the credits are jokes. Spike Milligan's name is real. This is a big deal. They've got a Spike Milligan script, not knowing at the time where it's from. It's a leftover from that play. But it feels like a little shift within the, the two runnings that felt like a special gift. And um, and at the time when I was really enjoying, what else would I, would I have been enjoying at the time? I would have been enjoying, say, Kenny Everett, with the anarchy of that, the yeah, breaking yeah. of television form in that. I yeah. love Danger Mouse would have been the other thing I like, which mm -hmm. again broke with all those things. Had David Jason in it, who provides the raspberries in the original uh, Phantom Raspberry Blower play. There's a controversy about who does the raspberries. Well, what you have to do is watch both of them and at the end of it, it tells you. <laughs> <laughs> There's no controversy at all. It's David Jason providing raspberries on the, the playlet in the Six Days of Barker. And at the end of the Milligan one, they credit that Milligan gives you the raspberries. And that. you can hear him grunting and groaning, can't you? Yeah, Ahead it's... Of... it's it's pure Milligan. Um, and I, that's another thing that's nice about it, as in television Milligan is difficult because a lot of the everyone goes, why isn't it repeated? And the answer is because a lot of it's not very good. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is problematic as hell, but not in a kind of woke way, but as in like, you just wouldn't put it on. Mm -hmm. um, and strangely, the, the Ronnie's version of it sanitizes that. And you sort of don't mind that the cheekiness means you get away with a lot of the jokes that when it's pure Milligan, you go, oh, there's an edge to this. The warmth of, of Barker and Corbett means you can get away with, you can you almost get away with the blackface, but you certainly get away with the sexism, and you certainly get away with the sort of the Jewish jokes. They feel so much more harmless and jolly than they do with Milligan, where they feel a bit sort of edgy. I, I love I love yes. the, even the even the difficult bits of it. I really enjoyed watching again, Lauren. I think it really helps that the there's a twinkle with 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 Barker and Corbett that that suits Milligan's rudeness well without it seeming like you want us to back away and the the the, the figure of the phantom raspberry blower is obviously oh. it's it's we we only see his face what it, it the the very last act or, or yeah, penultimate yeah. act uh but 
the battle over the, the open grave. I the mean, open it's good grave. hammer stuff. It's yeah. well staged. Um, <laughs> but it, it's obviously it's it's a, meant to be a sort of Jack the Ripper yeah. kind of character. And what interested me watching, so I watched obviously the Six Dates with Barker original, and then I watched the, the Two Ronnies yeah. version. And one of the things that was added for the Two Ronnies uh, was a scene between so Ronnie Ronnie C as Queen Victoria, yeah, and Ronnie B as as Edward the Seventh uh, or to be, or, yeah, to be, yeah. And at one point, Queen Victoria suspects Edward of being the Phantom Raspberry Blower. Yeah, this is and a, I was thinking a then, Barker edition, it's lovely. Yeah, and I was thinking then, okay, so when did this theory? spring up that edward the seventh could have been jack the ripper was that right. after this or was that before this because this is where it comes from yeah there's a lot of contemporary jokes this maybe that i'm not a ripperologist i should have done my research into ripperology before coming on uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of contemporary stuff that, that edward the seventh victoria scene is a parody of the timothy west edward the seventh yeah. series that was on so there's, there's jokes that you're missing now a little bit and i wonder whether there was a little sort of rumbling of oh maybe jack the ripper was was, a, a, mm. was an aristocrat and a, and a they, 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 they put that joke in and you're meant to get it um it's really nicely done actually it's a good it's a good misdirect you're sort of again one of those nice ronnie barker things that's got a solid bit of storytelling that bit there's no breaking of reality there at all it's all fine um i loved uh <laughs> i love queen victoria being jewish it's a brilliant brilliant <laughs> joke it's a nice warm she's a fussy jewish mother it's very funny uh mother you're not jewish it's very good um again that's a i can hear that in milligan's voice it's it's very sympathetically rewritten by Ronnie Barker and another probably when you look at those specials which were sort of the, the the jewel in the two Ronnie's crown they're not great you watch Charlie Farley and Piggy Malone or you watch the worm that turned they're not brilliant mm, yeah this one's brilliant mm. this one stands up as in I mean, it's an old-fashioned bit of comedy so you push it up the hill a bit but um the most successful one he's done I think is, is the work that Ronnie Barker's done with Spike Milligan's script making this into a a cracking little serial. The extra jokes are lovely, and the plotting, adding in a misdirect that is it the, the, the is it the Prince of Wales is is really good. That's a good bit of storytelling. Um, you're not watching it for the story, but I like the fact that he's bothered. Oh. <laughs> Edward, that noise was that you? Yes, I. You. Can't be. What do you mean? What are you staring at me like that for, Mama? Answer me. Answer me. Is it possible? Could it be that our own Edward, Prince of Wales, is the dreaded monster? Someone so near to the dear Queen? If this is so, then nothing at all can stand in the way of the phantom raspberry blower of old London town. One of the great things that you find out about being silly in comedy is it really helps if you've got a solid... You can do a weird guitar solo over the top of anything, but the bass and drums need to keep chuntering mm. away underneath. Mm. And the bass and drums are the boring bit to write, the meat and potatoes of it. And I think it's one of the things that is... I struggle with, with Milligan sometimes in the sense that I think a lot of people helped him do solid bass and drums work. His rhythm sections were always really, yes. really good. Yes, yes, um, And without it, he's chaotic and joyous, but chaotic. Um, and this feels like a collaboration where um, a little bit maybe 
Ronnie's got the bass and drums on this and he's keeping the thing pulsing along. Some of the comic set pieces are better in The Six Dates of Barker, the Milligan only script. But I think as a script, the Ronnie Barker rewrite is better. Um, the one hour version is is a more enjoyable, richer thing. What what I like about Six Dates with Barker is the four or five skyscraping moments in it, which is classic Milligan, that there's four or five moments. That you, I've never seen that before. You're experimenting, you're trying new comic voices, comic shapes I've never seen before. This is stunning. But uh, the, 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 the clutch is down for big chunks of it and some of it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, whereas the, the, the two Ronnie's one, cut into little seven minute chunks, little seven minute sketches, it chunters along, it's lovely. And it works better as a serial. It's it's it works well as a as a as a cliffhanger. Of well, it's 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 like a serial, like one of those you know Strand magazine serializations yeah, of a sensationalist it's, story. It suits it completely, and I think that's a, a another yeah good good. I'm saying good work from Barker all round, but good judgment and good rewrite, very good. Yeah, yeah you mentioned about um, Milligan needing a, an anchor sometimes yeah. to, to stop from floating away. A good example of that, obviously Larry Stevens in the Goon Show, but, but yeah, probably probably. Even more so, Eric Sykes. Yes. Um, even though Eric, it, it, it's become known now that Eric and Spike, or Eric wrote some shows actually on his own, even though he's credited as Milligan and Sykes. Some of well, those that, shows that's were just really Eric. interesting because I think mm. this is this is another example of uh, I love the Goons and I love Milligan. Mm. I am always very wary of lone genius myths mm. because I think that most things that collaborations or are made better by people. Uh, being uh, being enabled to do brilliant work but with others um and i always said that i think that larry stevens and eric sykes don't get enough credit for making the goons work and that when you say well why are we still trading lps of the goons and why aren't we showing q on television i can tell you why yeah. uh, because the people he was working with were absolutely first class at making that wildness not palatable is the wrong word making that wildness work making doing the engineering doing the hard the heavy lifting um you need to appreciate those people the, the the sort of unsung grunt workers and i think that this is a lovely demonstration if you watch them back to back i had i hadn't watched i'd obviously seen the six days in barker moderately recently within the last decade but i hadn't seen the the two ronnies version since i was a kid and i didn't realize the story is exactly the same it's scene for scene just he's just padded it yes so it follows the same story the same arc the same um big gag scenes are in it just slightly more slowly um and it's a brilliant example of how milligan works in collaboration i imagine unconscious collaboration he's collaborating with ronnie barker and it is better um he is someone who is a wayward unarguable genius andy riley i think the comedy writer this week said who would you say for the last hundred years is the most important person in british oh, yeah. comedy mm, I saw that. and and the answer was simply it, it's just spike milligan it is mm. that doesn't mean he's my favorite it doesn't mean he's the best, but he's probably the most important in that mm. he smashed everything up and so much that came afterwards was impossible without him. But that doesn't mean I think he can work on his own necessarily as brilliantly as he does in collaboration with Sellers and Seacombe or Benteen or Sykes and uh, uh, Stevens. And definitely this work with Ronnie Barker shows that he works really well in collaboration with someone who's just... I don't know, taking a bit of the weight off. The joke about Milligan is he's always having nervous breakdowns because there's so much weight on his shoulders and you keep wanting to go, we'll, we'll take some of the weight off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, would you say, would you compare Milligan with Peter Cook in terms of yeah, incredible Cook's comic like a, geniuses? Like who... a lazy Milligan, isn't it? He basically just can't be bothered. Milligan, Milligan's a much harder worker. Yeah. A driven person. And, and uh, Peter Cook's officer class sort of languor um, doesn't suit that at all. He, can't, he sort of can't be asked. 
<clears throat> but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm much the same feeling about Peter Cook. I go, I wish when Peter Cook sits down and does the grunt work, you get bedazzled. It's bloody brilliant. I, I wish there were four of those rather than just one. Um, uh, but I, I, I think, yeah, wayward genius. I'm always slightly. I, I suppose the, the, <laughs> the, the comparison we're trying to make, I suppose, is that they were they were potentially, arguably, overshadowed by their former comedy, if you like, partner in some respects. In terms of Sellers went on to yeah. Hollywood stardom, and and as did Dudley Moore, and and yeah, it's actually a, very similar. A certain amount of I won't say bitterness, but maybe I know in Milligan's case, he I know he resented to a certain degree Sellers' success, and he felt that he yeah. should have. He should have had this, the same bite of the cherry. <laughs> There's a very common, yeah. Actually, the funny thing about, about, about Cook is that you would expect, in terms of the dynamic, I'm going to do some really bad psychology here. Normally, when you watch Bedazzle, there's that spectacular and brilliant mm. bit in there where they do uh, Trimble Wedge, Dribble Wedge, and the Vegetation is the big pop number. Yeah, yeah. Where Peter Cook's languorous, uncaring, sort of very grand on horseback person is attracting all the attention and Dudley Moore's relentless working and grafting <laughs> is getting no attention at all. Normally what happens is the person who's languorously getting all the attention is the sellers goes off and gets all the glamour. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of funny that sort of Dudley Moore, who is a really hard worker because <laughs> he's producing jazz records at the same time as being a comedy yeah. person. And he's the person who went off and got a television series and invited his friend to be on. Um, and if you if you've ever watched the the, the film of um, uh, Beyond the Fringe, the American performance of Beyond the Fringe, watch that recording of it, the, the video recording of it, film recording of it. Stop at any point and say who's going to get famous. The answer is Dudley Moore, one hundred percent. That guy is a star. Everyone else is coasting on his coattails. He's massively. Mm. So Peter is a funny one in the sense that he's sort of the idle one. Mm. Uh, and normally uh, the resentment's the other way around. The idle one gets the thing they don't deserve. And you could see that, I bet Milligan's going, bloody sellers. Turns mm. up, does his silly voices, and everyone reckons everyone <laughs> wants to sleep with him and everyone wants to work with him. And I'm this difficult, mentally ill, traumatised genius, and no one can bottle me. No one can work out how to work with me. And you'd resent that. You'd, you'd get really cross. Um, that there, there is a feeling that sort of sellers is riding around on Milligan's back a bit. Um and I get the feeling that Milligan knew how hard he was working and could tell by the by the fact he kept having breakdowns. Yes. Yeah, but um, yeah. oddly, the answer was, Spike, your collaborators are the answer. And I wonder if anyone said to Eric Sykes, Larry Stevens, whether they felt they wanted to have a nervous breakdown <laughs> trying to help out. Um, because they wow. just seem to be slightly more maybe pragmatic, less less dramatic and less traumatised individuals. They... They did such great work, and yeah, I they, did, they didn't. Say, have, they didn't have the burden. Well, Eric maybe, but they they didn't really have the burden of of being labelled a comic genius. So yes. Eric, Eric didn't back then, anyway. I guess. But. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just the 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 the, the heavy lies the head that wears the crown thing. It's just, just yeah. they've got. I, I'm I'm really speculating here, but it's a funny. I I always want to talk about Milligan, but I always want to give the caveat of saying you know, some of his best stuff was done with people who could facilitate that genius who could quietly help him produce work to reach audiences with a with a, a less um not watering it down but basically helping him get his ideas across um yeah. and, and phantom raspberry blower which is a massive mainstream bit of milligan which people remember with enormous fondness some of that fondness is because it has been through the two ronnie's machine including all those lovely guys, the film people, the editing people, directors, and those two performers who, yeah, 
you can't watch the two Ronnies without just going, aren't they lovely? God, they're nice. <laughs> God, they're... they were massive kings of light entertainment for ages because they're really good. <laughs> they are, yeah. A, a, a couple of weeks ago, okay, every, uh, I don't know, every two years, every three years, I'll sit down, you know, with a bacon sandwich uh, and I'll watch the film of 10 Reddington Place, which, oh, yes. which, which I adore. Okay, so I watched that. I watched the rewatch it again a couple of weeks ago, and it still holds up. It's still a fantastic piece of work. Yeah. Horrible film. A horrible film. Horrible film. Horrible, I mean, in, in the best way, as in like yes. uh, like, the, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a horrible film, as in it's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be yes. horrible. It's, it's a wonderful achievement. Yeah. So I'm watching this, and there's a scene. Um, there's lots of exterior shots of because it was actually filmed at Rillington Place. The, the yeah, film. I thought it was demolished. Yeah, and then I'm watching the Six Dates with Barker. <laughs> version and i'm looking yeah. at this i'm looking at the scene where they've cornered the phantomies down this drain and i'm thinking now that looks familiar yep that it drain is... looks familiar because it, there's a exactly that yeah. <laughs> when i watched uh six of barker for the first time i was watching it with uh jason hazley my, my yeah, yeah. writing partner and he was uh He's he's a huge Reddington Place fan and and also as a teenager a fan of of, of classic murders and mm. he went shit within seconds that's Reddington Place <laughs> and I was slightly frightened by how quickly he recognised it but yep. also just uh, yeah so you freeze frame it which I which you do and you look, and it is and they must have known oh god yeah must have and known. and also you don't go down into the sewers at Reddington Place without knowing what's what was down in the sewers at Reddington Place it's really grim. Finally, on New Year's Eve, 1899, he was cornered in a sewer in the Crystal Palace area. <laughs> now listen to me, naughty phantom raspberry blower of old London town. I know you're down there. Give yourself up, or we'll play your own devilish recording back to you, amplified with a new electric police horn. Do you hear me? <laughs> You can hear you, sir. I'll count up to ten. You'll never take me alive! I'd rather turn my weapon upon myself! Come, sir, we will not bargain with you. Come out. I wonder if it's one of those things where, it sometimes happens with, with TV and film, where you will use the same location because you know that there's permission available to film there? Oh, maybe. As oh, in, yeah. We know people always, TV nerds and fans always moan about the same clips being used again and again in documentaries. And the answer is because the clearance has already been done for those. You'll, you'll use that shot of the people in Granny Takes a Trip looking through the, the <laughs> 60s Carnaby Street fashion because you know there's precedent. Lawyers have already checked that no one in that clip has objected to it being used. You go yeah. and find your own clip, there's a day's research being done uh, that, that is time you want to spend on getting uh, another clip. Uh, so basically you 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 send your researchers out uh you spend your research time wisely you don't do something twice if you if you don't have to so very often clips become the stuff rubbish piling up in the streets in the winter of discontent that clip is we know we're clear none of the bin men objected um so that's why it gets used again and again and i wonder whether you sort of say oh well that location appears to be available it appears to be uh, suitable for filming and it's a good horror location yeah um another great example of sometimes that when you want to do a parody of something the best thing to do is to do it for real to use the real locations. And one, some of the thing, one of the things that works about the Phantom Raspberry Blower, certainly did for me as a kid, 
is that when it's scary, it actually is quite scary. <laughs> uh, the face of the raspberry blower is frightening. Yes, yeah, and yeah. and the the the, the appearance, the, the jump scares, they're funny, but they're directed the same way as you do an attack by Dracula or an attack by uh, by by by, uh, by Jack the Ripper. They're shot the same way to make the joke work, but weirdly, it does give it a little frisson. And when they go to that creepy, horrible uh, corner of London, the dead end. Mm. Um, Rennington Place is a t brilliant location because it's this horrible Victorian uh, sort of slums with a nasty little sort of Victorian sewer under it and a brick wall. It's somewhere that you go down to and you can't escape, uh, where you'd get cornered, where you get trapped. So yeah. really, it's a perfect location for the end of the thing. But yeah, the the the, the vibe you get by watching it and knowing that that's Rillington Place. <laughs> Oh, John Christie done all their murders. Mm. It's horrible. Mm. Really nasty. Or maybe it's a sick joke for Milligan. Who knows? <laughs> Wouldn't put that past them. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's a different road when the two Ronnies come to do it. Because I guess when when did Rillington Place get? Yeah, it must have been. Between, I, I'm assuming between, I, two possibilities. One, it got demolished between seventy one and seventy six. I think it was shot for six of Barker shortly before demolition. So right. let's assume it gets done. But the other thing is I don't I don't think Ronnie Barker will go, yo, we've got to go down Ten Rillington Place. Maybe there's an awareness that, uh, <laughs> that, that would that would go down badly with the with the post tea time Saturday night audience. Uh they filmed yes, it's 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 uh, it's oddly gruesome knowing that it's a great fact. I think, yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's it's your king King Raspberry Blower fact, isn't it? It is <laughs> the um the scene that the, the the two Ronnies version of that scene at the you know when they've got the, the phantom corner down the sewer, that has a, um, a visual gag that I've always loved and it's always stuck with me. And I haven't I hadn't like yourself I hadn't watched mm. the two well I know I've seen the two Ronnies version more recently than you but yeah not for a long time, but it's a visual gag that's just throwaway, um, which you get in the six dates with Barker version, but it gets nothing from the audience. Yeah. It's the bit when the um, inspector is counting from 10 down yeah, yeah. for the for the phantom to give himself up. And there's the tension in the air and the camera's panning from policeman to policeman. And then there's a policeman with, with very prominent ginger side whiskers just turns and grins into the yes. camera. <laughs> I, I don't know why that's funny. Apart from it's just another one of those things where you're nodding at the audience going, at a moment of great tension, breaking the tension <laughs> at that point is really funny. He, he catches the... The, the, uh, he sort of reacts in the way that uh, Arthur Matthews spotted him, that drummers used to on top of the pops when they saw they were on the monitor and he sort of smile up um, yeah it's a proper sort of oh I'm on telly like, it's just beautiful <laughs> but, uh, there's, a, there's an extra joke there's a lovely extra side whiskers joke in um, in, uh, in in the, the Roger Bear where, where, where Bart oh no he's in the original he takes his hat off and the side whiskers come with it oh that's yeah that, the home secretary is it it's a is lovely it? joke yeah yes full of full of those proper proper jokes and also jokes that children would do you do a joke on everything you want to put a joke anywhere and 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 there's a sense of playfulness that's always in milligan <laughs> playing with stuff going if i can do it why don't we do it um well one of the obvious ones examples of that is sergeant bowles um who occasionally sometimes in the same scene will be played by a different actor. Yes. I'm not fooling myself today, which is a lovely line as well. Yeah, <laughs> and you're meant to, you might have noticed it, or when they're sitting in the handsome cab, cab and the the, the 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 back projection behind it will suddenly be of orangutans rather than <laughs> the street. Um, full of lovely jokes. Again, full on. The sort of, again, Milligan. Here's my theory about Milligan. Here's my theory about Milligan. Okay. Um, he's regarded as an absolute genius. But I think what he does is take the rules of animated cartoons and comic strips and apply them to human beings. And he does it on the radio. The goon sounds like an audio cartoon. Yeah. 
Yep. He does it in these. So things that can happen to Bugs Bunny, like Bugs Bunny might take a hat off and the sideburns might come with it. Um, he makes people behave like drawings. And in Mad Magazine pastiches or uh, comic strips and things, stuff will happen in the background. There'll be sign jokes, which there are in this. They're little. Everything is treated with the detail of comic strips and cartoons. And it feels like that's a very, very powerful comic voice to treat human beings like animated characters and milligan is the king of it because when you look at his stuff and you go well how does the the illogic of the goons and things it's usually just treating gravity like option like it's optional or time like it's flexible or the shape of the human body like it can stretch and and it's just saying oh well what if what if there were no limits and that's the same thing you get in Chuck Jones and Tex Avery, Popeye cartoons. The goons are named after a Popeye cartoon. Yes. I think it's the wildness of that, which happens in Father Ted and other sort of crazy, uh, real, hyper-real, unreal sitcoms where the rules are breakable a bit. Um, most sitcoms won't break those rules, but the ones that do have the values of a cartoon. And it's the confidence of saying that when I watch a Bugs Bunny cartoon, I still care that Bugs Bunny wins. I can break a lot of the rules of reality and still follow a story, still follow, know what's happening. Um, and Milligan, I think, is one of the best people in radio and on TV and in book form and things to, to do that. Every, we can do a joke about everything. And I think that we, in, in drawing and in animation, that impulse comes because it's boring to make. It takes ages to draw a page, so you'll just fill the corners with detail. And his his shows feel like leo baxendale bash street kids or mm. Kid strips mm. or tom patterson they feel like comics tom and Patterson, I think, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's why as a kid you love milligan and kenny everett and the, the 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 goons and you love uh uh airplane and you love their mad magazine they're, they're they like comic strips they have the values of and as a kid you go yeah i understand how to read this um but translated into another medium which is very hard to do uh into audio or to visual but they have the the sensibility the the gravity doesn't apply here uh, sensibilities of, of that and I, I love that yeah well i was watching this with some friends uh, watching the six dates with barker version just just the other night preparing for this and yeah th the first sort of belly laugh that you know from all of us was the scene where they've got a photo a crowd a, a photograph of a crowd scene it's like um, a photograph of i suppose the equivalent of trafalgar square on yes. day, and and there's a you know, on the photograph, there's a white arrow pointing. <laughs> yes. To some person in the crowd, and we think that we think that's him, sir. And then the next scene is this this guy with a big white arrow. Yes. Sort of positioned above his head. <laughs> pure comic strip, pure cartoon thing. The, the other one that I love, it's a, it's a time breaking one, which is where they arrive at the hospital. They do it in both versions, and it's, yes. it's but the, yes. honestly, the six dates bar, six dates with Barker version is impeccably timed. Mm. They wander in, go up, ask two questions to the person, and think, "What's your name?" Sorry, that's all you have time for tonight, and I ushered out. You'll have to come back tomorrow. The brilliant thing of the nurse will not allow them to ask more than one question. You'll have to come back tomorrow. A lovely uh, cliche of police dramas that oh, he's yes. too tired. He has to rest now. And they usher him out. They go to the door. A captain comes up, goes the next day. They turn around before even reaching the door, come back in and just do the next night. They don't cut away. They don't do the rest of it. But it's a lovely joke on the beats and shapes of police drama that says you've seen a million of these. And you know that after two questions, they're sent out. And then they have a little think and they come back and ask the rest of the questions. But mm. they just do it in 30, <laughs> in, in 30 seconds. That's a perfect joke. But it says time is not real. Space is not real. Uh, 
the only thing that's real is the conventions of television or the conventions of radio, the conventions of a comic. We can do whatever we like. We can take a line for a walk. And anything we can write, we can stage. We will show you. Anything yeah. that amuses us, we will do. Um, that freewheelingness is without saying, oh, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. We don't do total comedy on TV. Comedy on TV is brilliant. Lots of it is my favourite comedy there's ever been. But it, it's all real. It's all really happening. We very rarely risk breaking reality and letting the audience in on the joke to the degree that Milligan does and Barker <laughs> does here and says, we trust you to carry this story and care about it, even though our main job is to do everything silly we can. Yeah, yeah. How do you think, I mean, we've, I suppose you've already talked about this, but how does, how do you think Barker in the, in the Six Dates with Barker version, the original version, yeah. how do you think Barker sort of adapts his style to Milligan's style, Milligan's material? Really well. I mean, actually, I suppose I'm going to make a, a point here. It's never occurred to me. There is another person involved in this who completely understands comic books and comic strips and and comic drawing, and that's Ronnie Barker, who collected seaside postcards and was obsessed oh, by that kind yeah. of world of popping monocles and exaggerated unreality and everything being slightly cartoonish and did those lovely um, silent wordless things, which are all done like a sort of a cartoon. Like a, they're, they're, People say, they're, say that, that things like Rhubarb Rhubarb and things are like uh, silent cinema, but they're not. They're much more like a comic. They're much more like a sort he of did, a film. Um, film by the, was it By the by Sea? The sea yeah. yeah. Fartek's End and those ones. And they've got the values of treating human beings like uh, drawings. Yeah. Uh, and he's got that lovely face. I mean, one of his flexibilities as an actor is he can, he can look like a seaside postcard or a, a, something painted on the side of a waltzer. Oh, yeah, with the, the 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 in the two Ronnies version with the stage door with um, John oh. Owens as the violet seller. Yes, honestly, <laughs> and, uh, that, that performance, he's 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 sort of blown himself up like a barrage balloon. Oh, Dulcie, you gorgeous creature. Hello, Lord Peter. Uh, I got your note, Lord Peter. And what is your answer, you dearest little thing? <laughs> well, when a girl is offered a, a country cottage, yeah. a diamond bracelet and a fur wrap, and all she's got to do is just, well, what you said in your note, well, the only possible answer is... Oh, I say, good Lord, look here, steady on, really, what was that? You know what that was, don't you? That was him. That was... The Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town. <laughs> the performance style suits that. I mean, in one way you look at it and you go, it's a bit carry-on, it's that tradition, but also it's pure comic strip. He is becoming... Uh, a character that Davy Jones would draw in a viz strip as the Lord Mayor. He's got that <laughs> Edwardian comic book, comic cuts, film fun look about him. So he's a perfect fit for Milligan, who is also doing sort of a tribute to the comics and cartoons of his childhood and teens, I suppose. I, I th that's, that's key for me with Milligan is that he named the goons after the, the characters from Popeye cartoons. He likes cartoons. He likes drawing cartoons. These are two people who've got a, a cartoonist's eye for what's funny and think like, uh, like I don't know, Heath Robinson or Ken Reed or, or, or Leo Baxendale. There's a, there's a British comics sensibility in this, which, again, whenever you used to read Cheeky Comic or The Beano or whatever, yeah. it was all anything for a joke. 
uh, and again, that goes into Danger Mouse and uh, British Animation. That those rules, and we get a connection there with David Jason again. But th those rules of um, once we've built the world, we will break all the rules in that world, and the narrator will interact with the characters. And there's no there's no boundaries. The edge of the world is just the edge of the frame, but we mm -hmm. can do anything in it. And mm -hmm. that that sense of comic invention sometimes gets talked about as if there's no precedent for it. And I think what it is is people are not expecting it, but there is a complete precedent for it, and it's drawing. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the the two runnies serial. Uh, yeah. Every episode opens with the 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 title sequence. Yeah, and it's it's the opening bars of Vaughan Williams' Symphony Number no. Six. Is it? Yeah, I didn't recognise it, and I'm, yeah. I'm a big Vaughan Williams head. And I didn't recognise. I didn't. I didn't even think to wonder what it was. I thought it was the Phantom well, Rosemary music. I, I, <laughs> I went. I, I went in. What I, I went on YouTube, and there was like a, a clip from I don't know last night at the proms or something. Yeah, and they were playing it, and it was like it was. It, you're playing the theme from the Phantom Raspberry Blower. Well, we're going to finish tonight's prom with Vaughan Williams' Sixth Symphony, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Oh, in which case, I will draw a thing here, which is, again, we're coming back to me sort of saying the, 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 the line straight through from this to Python and, and, and the fact they are, in my head, sort of cousins, exactly yeah. by the same kind of world, is that there's a lot of use in this of the uh, Victorian illustrations that are then animated. Again, I imagine the editing done by Ray Millichape, who'd done all of Gilliam's, edited all of Gilliam's animations mm. into Python. And mm. they seem to be, some of them, cartoons from a book I've got on my shelf right next to me now, called Victorian Advertisements by Leonard de Vrice, I think. And it was collected in 1968. And it was in my local library and I bought it when they sold it off. Um, and it's the one I think Gilliam cut up because most of Gilliam's oh, cartoons are in okay. it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the same one they're using for this. It must have been in either in the BBC library or just a book that you had if you were a graphic designer. Um, and loads of them, you'll recognise some of the women in corsets that are used for illustrations in Phantom Raspberry Blower are also from Gilliam cartoons. And there's a complete uh, feeling of enjoying that stiff Victoriana and the, the illustration methods of, cutouts and moving things around that that makes again makes them all feel like cousins of each other have you ever seen the early 60s short film the do-it-yourself cartoon kit yeah bob godfrey's one yeah which is yeah. massive inspiration on, on for gilliam but it's it's you stupidly you know those things you never put the two things together and you go oh, of course all that sort of lord kitchener yes. Sergeant pepper chic yes the obsession with edwardian and victorian stiffness and then then bolting anarchy onto it is, is all <laughs> part of the same world um yes. There is a relationship with what I suppose is the grandparents' generation and sort of using it in a way that maybe when we were growing up, we were, I've done it with Mr. Chumley Warner or something, the idea of finding sort of vintage mm. stiffness funny and, mm. and a good place to put nonsense. Um, that you, you sort of look at it and go, oh, that's just the language of comedy. It isn't. It was made up by somebody. And But there's a lot of shared graphic values with Phantom Raspberry Blower and Monty Python, I think, as well, which, which yeah, and very possibly the same guy with the scissors editing it together. A do-it-yourself cartoon kit narrated by Michael Benting. Of course it is. Yes, it's Bob Godfrey and Michael Benting. Yes, you will and need what, four of these, two bings, four bangs. Oh, I love that as a kid. <laughs> and, Again, and I liked anything that reminded me of Monty Python as a kid. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you look, if you're just getting back to where we came in um, with It's a Square World, there's a lot of animation sequences in that uh, by God, uh, Bob Godfrey. Oh, brilliant. Um, so you think, God, you know. God, Godfrey's in charge of everything, <laughs> secretly behind everything. 
well he oh he God. he did a, he did a lot of animate not a lot he did some animation for um the series son of fred in did he? 56 well, he, he would have been that i mean is that great thing where, where british animation was about seven people yeah, because um, yes. so, it wasn't Walt Disney. It, it was all cottage industry and things. He was, uh, here we go. He was the honorary animation tutor at my art college where I did foundation. And the whole point was I only joined so I could meet Bob Godfrey. Uh-huh. And then I, then I did what you do at that age. I dropped out of art college before the final exam and never met him. But yes, uh, I only, I, I remember saying that was my reason when I were, were trying to get the funding prize. I want to go meet Bob Godfrey was my reason because he was a sort of teenage hero of mine. But yeah, he's brilliant. Absolutely amazing. But they're all related. You can feel that that sensibility. And again, that connection between the energy of animation and the uh, the art of moving around little drawings and the freedom you get with those. This is all... Uh, the, yeah, the element, if you want to understand British comedy from this time, you, if you, you've got to include drawing in it. You've got to include comics and animation as mm. part of that. Mm. Because that energy, when you cut from... Python made it very uh, explicit, but when you cut from animation to live action, you're treating the live action people the same way as the animated people and vice versa. <laughs> Some of the fun of this is treating people like little cut out bits of paper or, or, or characters in a, in, a, in, a, in a Warner Brothers cartoon, Looney Tunes or a Merry Melodies or something, that they all have the same rules. There's, there's nothing that anyone does in this that isn't done in a Roadrunner cartoon. No. not a million miles apart from each other and as a kid you understood that you liked them all about the same and that's because they're sort of the same i must admit i don't think it's, it's really lovely i love looking back at at, at milligan stuff um mm. because i think as a kid i hero worshipped him the other the other obviously the other element about worshipping milligan was that the goon show scripts were the first scripts I ever owned. Uh, a lot of people said that. Yeah, yeah, because you forget that was published. That wasn't a thing that happened very often. And they were published and they had scribbles all over them. They looked like radio scripts and they they told you how to do it. It was an instruction manual. on. You'd, you'd heard these magical things uh, on the radio that seemed to be this, this sort of strange world that happened. And then here was the instruction manual. Here was the Lego Mm-hmm. instructions on how to build it and if you wrote down the first thing i did was i started to get a typewriter out and copied it and wrote grams and then got a tape deck and tried to make my own things and it, it was the the means of production was suddenly in your hands um so i so i regarded milligan as not only like a massive hero but also someone who'd shown me how to do it um and then as i got older i probably got intolerant of Milligan because when I watched him doing his Q stuff, which I really like Q, but it's hard mm. to persuade him. You can watch a best of Q with someone. It's definitely something that the best of is off yes. the chart brilliant. Yes. But you, you don't want to sit through all of it. It's hard work. And I suddenly went, oh God, one of my heroes has got feet of clay. Everything they do isn't brilliant. Because I was one of those people who thought every single bit of Monty Python was brilliant, uh, which I now think slightly less. But I just, I went, oh, it doesn't stand up. And I really like revisiting Milligan and finding out how good he was. Um, yeah. And particularly the the thing with this, I hadn't compared the two before. And having the chance to look at them and go, ah, that's where the purity of Milligan is is lightning in a bottle. And my God, they could never shoot that again. There are things they do in the the, the play that they 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 fluff when they do it for the for for, for the Rons. It doesn't get a laugh sometimes. The thing. Mm. So you go, oh, always educational to see that that it's not just genius. Sometimes a tiny problem with the edit will screw a, a great joke up but i loved watching how it was adapted from one to the other and i loved realizing how all the lovely quiet hard work ronnie barker's doing and then then i got to see something which is milligan in collaboration which very often is my favorite stuff i love mm, mm. i love knowing that he I, I don't know maybe i feel relief that he's not 
carrying all the weight on it on his own because the increasingly as I got older, the drama of Milligan's mental health and things got in the way of me loving his work. I felt sorry for him a lot because he obviously was in so much pain. Um, I love seeing him be silly. Well, I really, maybe that's why I, I picked it when you sort of said pick something that no one's done. And I went, oh, this is the thing that no one says about this. Oh, that's a bit disappointing. I remember that not being very good. Everyone goes, oh, I loved that. Yeah. Um, and it's also the thing I loved as a kid that I hadn't had another look at. Um, it's an unarguably great bit of television Milligan. And the let's say in the Ronnie's version, there are 20 jokes that are as good as anything you've ever seen on telly. That's a pretty good hit, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and the bits in between it are really fun and silly. Um, it's got some proper, proper jokes in it that if you like Airplane or Monty Python, there's some <laughs> jokes in here that are as good as the big signature gags in those. Or um, Police Squad. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, it's those sort of jokes. Police Squad, of course, uh, one that almost never breaks its own world. It's weirdly weird. They they, it, it, they they do a fake freeze frame at the end, but I don't ever not believe they're really policemen. <laughs> I mean, what the hell's? Going I think again, some of it is maybe to do with with having a getting a really what I always call a really strong bucket, and the strong bucket of this a Hammer Horror Jack the Ripper serial. You they never scribble over the edges of that. They stay within the lines of that, and so therefore, like Police Squad is a detective serial and works as a detective thing. There are real crimes to solve. You can follow it. There's a real person who's really murdering people. They don't pretend it didn't happen. No one, no one goes back on the contract with the audience, which is we're going to tell you a rip roaring Jack the Ripper yarn using every joke we can. Um, it's a lovely example of how far you can push that and still keep the story on tracks. So as a piece of writing craft, uh, certainly uh, the Barker Milligan version is really good. It is, it is. Oh, Joel, listen, thank you so much for oh, such coming joy. to talk to me. Um, it's been, God, it's, look, I mean, I, it seems like we've been talking for 10 minutes, but we've been talking for ages. <laughs> Jeez. Sorry about that. That's yeah. all right. No, it's, been, it's been great. Um, how's the, the book on comedy theory coming along? Really good fun, which is worrying. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, yesterday I was writing about gorillas and chimpanzees throwing shit. Uh, right. So we've reached that stage of it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's coming on really well. I think it will be, hopefully, I think that weirdly, because one of those crowdfunding things, which you have to explain to people, go, it's like funding a film. You fund the film and then they say, do it. But I already got about halfway through by the time that the funding came through. So I basically have nearly not far off finishing it. And I've, not, I've really enjoyed writing it, hopefully. Um, and that's podcast experience. I think I've really enjoyed doing deep dives into things and, I'm trying to write it like like making a podcast to say, okay, I'll, it'll be structured, but it will mainly be just thoughts on things and stuff I've got from talking to people, um, which has been an education. Doing the podcast, you talk to people who give you ideas about comedy and structure and and and, and how humans absorb things that you've never done. Having a chance to do something which is about something I think is really important and hasn't been written about before, which is comedy not as a craft, not as in as a performer. But doing comedy as in, okay, what does it what does it do to our brains? Mm. What, what's going on mm. inside? And the answer is no one knows. No one's really studied it. But there's a lot of research, so you can. I'm making some sort of swaggery guesses uh, based on experience <laughs> that seem to stand up. Uh, and doing a proper deep dive into comedy in general. Um, and so, yeah, that what's not fun about that? I'm really, I'm really enjoying. It. Hopefully, that'll come across in the book. I, I'm just really enjoying writing it. I hope you're going into excruciating detail. To the oh, it's going to be it's... absolutely terrible. I mean, <laughs> when that chapter, the, the chapter I deleted, I've now put back in actually. But the chapter I deleted was originally called "One Episode of The Simpsons," and I was going to analyse the jokes in that, and then it became 20 minutes of The Simpsons." 10 minutes, the Simpsons, eight minutes the, by the time it came out it was a double length chapter it was called two minutes of the simpsons and it was analyzing all the jokes 
up and I gave myself the arbitrary limit of I will analyze the jokes until the credits stop appearing on the screen. And it took about 6,000 words to explain. I think it was about 15 really clever jokes that happened before the show starts. Um, so I'm at that level of detail. And I need Great. To stopped. <laughs> Great. I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Uh, and and oh, all the best with Comfort Blanket. And, and any, anything else coming up? Uh, obviously, I'm writing. That's my mm -hmm. job. Um, yep. So I'm, I hopefully, having come out of lockdown, which is tough for everybody, I'm now sort of back. The thing you do as a writer, having meetings, uh, mm. giving people scripts. So yes, hopefully one of those will turn into something. Um, so at the moment, I'm just I'm writing all the time. I'm really, really busy. Uh, but all of it's in that speculative, we've just come out of a pandemic phase. So there's, there's stuff on desks. Let's see what happens. Thanks to Joel. Next week, I'll be talking to uh, Lee Moon about putting the Phantom Raspberry Blower on stage. In the meantime, have a very happy Christmas, and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs>